This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Gender on the New Books Network. My name is Diana Dehanova, and I will be your host today. I'm speaking with Dr. Ikra Shagufta Chima. Dr. Chima is an assistant professor at Graceland University in Iowa, where she's also the coordinator of a new major called Social Change. She teaches and writes about Anglophone literatures, gender and sexuality studies, transnational feminisms, and film studies. She is the editor of the book, The Other Me Too's, which came out with Oxford University Press in May 2023. And that's what we will be discussing today. Dr. Chima, welcome to the podcast and thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Diana. Uh, so in the preface to your book, uh, you share a personal story of how you first experienced the Me Too phenomenon uh, back in October 2017 and how you were inspired to start the project that resulted in this edited volume. Could you talk about that experience and how the volume came together? Yes, absolutely. Um, I first experienced the Me Too movement in October 2017 with everyone else online when the hashtag was first tweeted. I got both intrigued and inspired by the Me Too as a social movement and its goals and conceptions with every tweet or social media post or online interaction and the way it was being reported. Um, I share in the preface to the other Me Too's how overwhelming it is for me to think and know that I lived through such a huge transformative feminist movement in our history. And the same disbelief and sense of gratitude holds true for me even now. Me Too has done so much that is truly transformative and impressive. For example, the massive awareness about everyday banal sexist behaviors, the feminist consciousness about the prevalence and indoctrination of misogynist cruelties, and most importantly, the knowledge and the vocabulary about how to speak about and fight against these behaviors that the Me Too was able to inculcate in everybody, irrespective of their support or denigration of the Me Too movement. Um, I followed the development of the Me Too movement due to my personal interest and investment in its reception and impact. However, over time, I noticed that the conversations around the Me Too were more American-centric and Western-centric, especially academic conversations. Between October to November 2017, the hashtag Me Too was tweeted more than 2.3 million times, and hashtag Women's March was tweeted 11.5 million times in multiple indigenous and national languages worldwide. However, not all of these experiences became a part of the mainstream Me Too conversations, despite the fact that these voices collectively made the movement what it is. Me Too movement was conceptualized as a global movement or 
organization. So I felt that the movement's Western centricity was reductive. I also remember reading a photo report on women's marches from around the world in a magazine. From the yeah, in a magazine. Um, I think it was in the Washington Post. It was such a fascinating collection of photos that truly captured the many different ways of being a woman at the various cultural and political intersections in the world. There were photos from Iran, France, India, Pakistan, Italy. Even if you only think of the narratives around women's hair and women's right to choose whether or not they want their hair covered, you see how fascinating these photos would be. The politics around head covers in Iran, India, France, the Netherlands, and the global responses to that politics. That really intrigued me there. The photo essay stayed with me for some time. All of these things together then, the international impact of the Me Too movement on all kinds of feminist movements globally, the lack of attention to the expansive impact of the movement in the global majority locations, and the media reportage and scholarship about the Me Too inspired me to add it to the other Me Too's. Um, now, you also write in the preface that you were a doctoral student in October 2017. Um, was this project an element of that research? Um, and can you talk just in general about your research background? Yes, definitely. Um, I mostly teach and write about digital cultures, transnational feminisms, and postcolonial literature and films. Um, neither of my book projects, the other Me Too's, and then I have another project, neither of them were part of my PhD project. However, I did start working on both of these books during my PhD. With the other Me Too's, I first organized it as a panel about the Global South Me Too's at MLA, Modern Language Association. After that, I invited essays for the edited collection and I received many enthused responses. I did not know much about academic publishing when I started this project, especially an edited project can be a truly weird beast. It became even more difficult because I really did not have any academic credentials at the time when I started the other Me Too's. And during the publication process, I learned that most of the professors don't remember what it is like to publish as a grad student or what it's like to try to publish your first edited volume. But I was lucky that I had the support of some early career scholars who are very generous to me. And I was lucky to find some amazing, kind acquisition editors at the presses that I reached out to. I would especially like to acknowledge Naima Kayyum's generosity in sharing her proposal with me. It was difficult to crack the unwritten code of academic publishing, but with the help of some very generous editors and friends, I was able to crack it. And now we have this book in our hands. Uh, yeah, I think I think I'm just a few years um, ahead of you in the in the PhD journey, so that's definitely uh, resonates with me a lot with my academic publishing experiences. But yeah. I'm so glad that you were able to bring this book out, and honestly, that's very prolific output. Um, you know, to have two projects and your dissertation, so that's oh, really thank impressive. Thanks so much for saying that. <laughs> Um, so you mentioned um, that you found the Me Too conversation very American-centric and Western-centric. How would you describe the kind of Anglophone academic conversation around it in uh, 2023? And what are some of the gaps that the volume seeks to address? Yes. Um, so in terms of the academic conversation around Me Too, there were some books already out when I started working on the other Me Too's. Uh, Me Too and the Politics of Social Change, edited by Bianca Feilborn and Rachel Loney House, and the Global Me Too Movement by Anne Knoll and David Oppenheimer, that focuses particularly in the field of law, had already been published by that time. Um, then there were other books 
for example, reporting on sexual violence in the Me Too era, which is edited by Andrea Baker and uh, Usha Rodriguez that focuses in the field of journalism, and the Rutledge Handbook of the Politics of the Me Too Movement, which is edited by Geeti Chandra and Arman Erling's daughter, uh, which came out while I was working on the other Me Too's. What I had noticed in the books that arrived before I started working on my book was that they did not capture the truly international impact of the Me Too, especially in global majority communities and countries. And to be fair, it is impossible to capture every perspective in one book. So I decided to edit the other Me Too's to focus solely on the global South or the global majority communities. So the other Me Too's then collected diverse international perspectives and voices that explore the different iterations, adaptations, translations, receptions of the Me Too from non-Western countries and communities. The book not only amplifies those voices that may have been glossed over, but also highlights what the Me Too movement means for them how Me Too renders itself in a diversity of contexts, and why listening to these voices matters to the larger Me Too movement. This book also shows the ways Me Too affects the everyday lives of average women, advances feminist consciousness and practices, and informs the relationship between feminist theory and practice within marginalized and minoritized communities. It also positions Me Too within larger debates about transnational and women of color feminisms, particularly traces the ways it interacts with and influences local and indigenous feminisms, locates it simultaneously within local and global feminist politics, and discusses how it meets the challenges posed by such a positionality. Um, now, to go back to this, um, the 2017 moment, uh, the Me Too hashtag went viral on Twitter back then as a result of a tweet from actress Alyssa Milano, and she was originally credited in the media with starting the international Me Too movement, um, but the movement and the term, of course, have a much longer history. Um, could you talk about those origins and how they were initially obscured? Yes, definitely. So Me Too gained popularity in 2017 after a tweet on Twitter um, by Alyssa Milano, but Tarana Burke, a Black woman, had started a movement by the same name in 2006 on MySpace. Milano's tweet turned into an international movement. Burke's Me Too movement had not received traction at that time, arguably because of limited social media in 2006. But the problematics of visibility and exclusion of Black and Indigenous and women of color voices and communities surfaced when Milano, instead of Burke, was credited with starting the Me Too movement. Milano, when she learned about Burke's Me Too movement, acknowledged her contribution and Burke accepted her role as the leader of the Me Too movement. While Milano's tweet had received responses from celebrities like Lady Gaga, Jennifer Lawrence, Javier Munoz, and Deborah Messing, Burke only received credit for her work after Black feminists and other allies amplified her work online. Burke was discredited not because of Milano's malintent, but because of cultural and political hostility against feminists, especially feminists of color. Burke's Me Too had also received traction in 2006, but uh, between 2006 and 2017, sociopolitical shifts like broader cultural acceptance of feminist politics, um, increased international recognition of the need for feminist justice, greater awareness about intersectional feminism, wider availability of feminist vocabularies, and relatively decreased taboos around conversations about gendered and sexual violence had prepared relatively hospitable grounds for feminist conversations by the time Alyssa Milano tweeted Me Too. 
Burke, in one of our interviews, commented that discrediting her work was perhaps unintentional, but somehow sisters of color managed to get diminished or erased in these situations. Burke's Me Too supports an international sisterhood of Black and Indigenous and um, people of color survivors under the assumption that all survivors are equal. But famous Me Too cases that went viral after Milano's tweets suggest that is not the case. And Burke's goal is to reclaim the grassroots movement that she intended for Me Too to be. So she talks about Me Too as a grassroots movement for sexual assault survivors in underprivileged communities. She insists upon the need to reclaim Me Too for the women of color. In her keynote at Facing Race Conference in 2018, Burke asserted that a Me Too movement must care as much about the original victims as it does about actresses who wanted careers and producers who got away with career murder. But the Me Too hashtag eventually became the integrative site for both Burke's and Milano's shared goals and the critical instrument for the larger Me Too movement. So in a way, um, they were able to kind of like get past this kind of recognition or this kind of invisibility and then focus on the larger goal that both of these movements shared in common. Um, now you talk a lot about um, kind of hashtag campaigns, right, and social um, social media activism. Um, can you talk about some of the differences in the ways that hashtag campaigns are used in the United States um, versus non-Western localities? Right. Yes, I think like one of the biggest differences in the way uh, hashtag campaigns are used in the U.S. and in many non-Western locations is maybe um, in terms of their visibility and in terms of sharing the different experiences. Online, So the other Me Too's explores Me Too as an instantaneous and visible model of transnational feminist solidarity via hashtag. Hashtag campaigns like Me Too amplify feminist visibility and raise feminist consciousness, despite the fact that issues like cis heteronormativity or patriarchy or race, class and other forms of privilege continue to affect Me Too and other movements around women or feminism. Through platforms like Twitter that are more instantly accessible and available than on-ground political forums, MeToo helps identify the diverse and multidimensional factors that contribute to gendered and sexual violence. And by documenting these defining feminist moments and the different MeToo movements in different local and indigenous and post-colonial contexts, the many chapters in this book both acknowledge and examine the diversity of feminism and its international contours. The MeToo movement manifests then a virtual, widely available model of solidarity via hashtag, which translates into mass awareness on the ground activism and alternative modes of feminist praxis, but also social accountability. This instant accessibility and visibility of Me Too conversations provides victims and survivors the emotional and linguistic tool to virtually report and document their experiences. This is especially helpful in communities and countries that lack state support or cultural support for victims of sexual and gendered violence. But with significant changes in the online platforms like Twitter and their policies, we have yet to see how that will affect these movements of social change or movements of social justice in the longer run. Mm -hmm. Um, And what are some um, of the challenges? You already mentioned a couple um, that the movement has faced both um, online and in physical spaces. 
Um, right. So one major challenge in addition to the ones that um, I spoke about in response to the previous question is that participation in Me Too is what I call a paradoxical feminist method. So online participation is like what has made the movement into what it is. Online participation is arguably as effective as in-person gatherings and protests as um, a feminist political strategy. It is safer and easier for women, not only because of their personal limitations to participate in online spaces, but also because of the invocation of anti-feminist propaganda and the anti-feminist structures against feminists in both physical and virtual spaces. But the material structures and the various discriminatory or violent forms of of social or cultural forms that discourage women's participation in on-the-ground feminist politics also threaten their presence in online spaces because these structures are built and designed into the architecture of the internet as well. So participation in digital feminist campaigns then serves as a low barrier entrance for feminists and for feminist activism and political engagement, but women still encounter multiple challenges which manifest in Um, increased violence or hatred against feminists and feminisms, especially after Me Too and women's marches. This kind of hatred and vitriol increases in the wake of women's marches and then subsides until there is a new women's march or a feminist hashtag trend on social media. Alternatively worded, women's visibility in public spaces inadvertently incites increased expressions of misogyny which kind of turn into a cyclical pattern of vitriol, which subsides and then intensifies with the decrease and increase in women's visibility, either in physical or in virtual spaces. This kind of violence, this kind of vitriol ranges from online abuse and threats to real life abuse and threats of sexual violence to feminist activists, Me Too participants, Women's March organizers and Women's March participants. And different scholars have given it different names. The trend is termed mediated misogyny, gender trolling, cyber sexism, gendered cyber hate. Um, Orat March in Pakistan stands as an example of this kind of cyclical pattern of popular feminism and popular misogyny, both terms that are introduced by Sarah Bennett Weiser. Um, However, this anti-feminist vitriol works as what I have termed a double-edged visibility accountability loop because it requires an online virtual expression of gendered and sexual abuse and threats of violence, while also making these abusers and aggressors visible. This kind of visibility then creates accountability. It facilitates the creation of relatively safe virtual spaces and the safeguarding of these spaces by enabling feminists to either block aggressors or limit interactions with them. But on the contrary, by expressing abuse or threats, aggressors also make themselves available for a public dialogue with their opponents. The hashtag MeToo then becomes the signifier or tool to access the virtual space that facilitates a public dialogue or a public dialogical engagement by enabling participants to bypass many physical, psychological, or hierarchical barriers that they may encounter in their real-life dialogues about controversial subjects like feminism. And this kind of public dialogical engagement is more immediate and controllable because of the character limit on social media platforms like Twitter, um, inability to interrupt the opponent, and the consequences of getting reported or losing access to the social media account if anybody resorts to explicitly threatening language. 
While these dialogues aren't always constructive or generative in any immediately discernible way, they are very significant when it comes to wider cultural change. They are instrumental in popularizing feminist vocabularies and familiarizing the public with feminist debates. Um, Me Too and women's marches have changed people's everyday vocabularies about women's rights and gender equality. The use of these vocabularies may not always be supportive of feminist goals, but it requires intellectual and rational engagement with feminist ideas, and therefore it advances feminist conversations in hostile places, even if it doesn't favor them. A familiarity with and popularity of these vocabularies, regardless of their supportive or denigrative views, translates into wider normalization of feminist ideas and goals. These familiar vocabularies cognitively become less threatening, more familiar, and thereby contribute to making sociocultural spaces less hostile for feminisms, feminists, or feminist work. But the choice of these vocabularies employed in feminist politics also remains a site of contention and exclusion in many situations, especially countries and communities that have histories of colonization, experiences with the war on terror, and contentions with local religious and political factions. So, for example, the word feminism is demonized in many communities, in many post-colonies that associate feminism with the Western histories of modernity, colonization, and imperialism. Instead, they prefer terms for women's rights in their own local languages, for example, Hakuke Niswa in Pakistan. Though these terms carry meanings similar to feminism, which itself is an unstable term, popular feminism then continues to use English words, which kind of becomes an irresolvable challenge considering the international usage and localized forms of English. Academic and transnational feminist conversations then remain inherently classist because a lot of the times it's only upper-class, well-educated women who are familiar with the conventional vocabularies or have access to the appropriate platforms to perform and discuss those specific feminisms. But the movements like Me Too often surpass this kind of communicative barriers because many social media platforms and websites include an inbuilt translation option. Therefore, Me Too became the signifier and the tool that didn't require correct feminist vocabularies or English language fluency to take part in a global feminist movement. Instead of requiring the possession of linguistic or any material tools, Me Too feminism kind of has a come-as-you-are approach, but an intersectional assemblage of many institutions like race, ethnicity, caste, class, location, continues to affect women's choice and their ability to participate in Me Too. But Me Too still remains a very effective, alternative, non-punitive mode of accountability, which abolition feminists have advocated for long, reporting gendered and sexual violence to any like juridical legal institution, consumes an excruciating amount of emotional, psychological, and financial energy. The intersectionality of violence renders the task of seeking justice via any proper channels, really, really difficult. So for example, in countries with high corruption rates, legal fights are won by whoever among the victims or the aggressor comes from a more privileged socioeconomic or racial or political background. If both victim and aggressor are affluent, then decisions tend to favor men. Additionally, these complaints are often reported to men with similar histories of abuse or exploitation. 
who become enablers or protectors of the aggressors or who at least view the aggressor with some kind of like, um, you know, kindness. For, for most others, reporting violence turns into a long, arduous battle against state institutions, which often has really high costs for the victims, and it ends up hurting the victims a lot more than it hurt the aggressors. So I think like these are some of the challenges that Me Too continues to face both in virtual and physical spaces, and that can only be eradicated with larger cultural changes in um, our behaviors and the way we perceive feminism and women's rights. Um, I think for me, one of the most interesting things kind of uh, for this volume as a whole, was I think it makes a really strong case for uh, viewing the virtual space and, and as a distinct space, right, as opposed to sort of this dismissive hashtag feminism or hashtag activism description, right, that used to be thrown around a lot in the last decade. Right. Yeah, yeah, I think you're exactly right. And uh, they're, you know, like, in some ways, they are different spaces, but also in some ways, like, they definitely kind of like seep into each other. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, the conversation, when you talk about these spaces, a lot more complex than, you know, like, talking about like, whether they're completely separate or not, because we live life in both of those spaces. So they're kind of like both part of the life, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you mentioned um, a, a few times some of the critiques of, of the movement. Um, so what are some of the critiques um, that the contributor to the volume address here? Right. Um, so some of the essays um, that are in, so a lot of the essays are in conversation with each other and can be read comparatively in this book. So the conversation is about the global relationship between the different receptions of the Me Too movement everywhere, especially, you know, like the global majority countries in which the book focuses. So for this purpose, the other Me Too's then uh, loosely organizes chapters geographically and thematically, but I haven't assigned any section headings because of the multiple intersections in these conversations. Um, The book has anthologized and like a lot of the essays celebrate the Me Too movement, but also they critique the Me Too movement as well, because despite its wide impact, Me Too movement mainly focuses on like cis and heterosexual people. Women as a demographically larger number than queer population assume more space in Me Too. So a lot of the times... Uh, for us LGBTQIA plus experiences of gender and sexual violence remain marginalized in the movement. And I hope that we can reflect on some of the ways in which we navigate and negotiate feminist movements uh, to be more inclusive. But um, I think like, that's one large critique besides like some other smaller critiques that the many contributors in the volume talk uh, offer when they are discussing the impact of the Me Too in their specific locales. Um, so could you talk a little bit more about some of the critiques um, to the Me Too movement that this volume addresses? Yes. So um, a lot of the essays in the book are in conversation with each other and they can be read comparatively. So the conversation is about the global relationship between the impact of the Me Too movement in different communities and in different countries. And I think like if read that way, then there are different critiques that the reader might arrive at themselves. But um, besides that, the book and the many chapters that it includes, it this celebrate, but also critique the Me Too movement and um, the way it interacts with different communities. One major critique that we have is that despite its impact, the Me Too movement mainly focuses on heterosexual 
humans, women as a demographically larger number than queer population assume more space in Me Too. So though LGBTQIA plus experiences of gender and sexual violence then remained very marginalized in the Me Too movement. And I hope we can reflect on some of the ways in which we navigate and negotiate feminist movements to be more inclusive of everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and you also you touched on this a little bit before, but um, can you discuss some of the theoretical approaches um, that the contributors use uh, to analyze the movement? Yes, definitely. Uh, there are some really, really amazing essays in the volume. So there are chapters by Anat Schwarz and Ran Dang that explore the relationship between histories of gender and sexual violence, historical feminist movements and possibilities of new feminist methods and solidarities in East Asia. Um, Anat assesses Me Too as indicative of a new method of feminism in South Korea, while uh, Ran highlights the erasure of comfort women to offer Me Too as a radical intervention that builds solidarity between survivors across time and space. Zoe Eddy, Nicholas Juarez, and Mary Cruz Gomez contribute chapters about Me Too centering in South America. Uh, Zoe highlights how indigenous communities have responded to not only Me Too, but the historical and contemporary crisis indigenous communities face. Nicholas examines settler colonial genocide of Native Americans to challenge the normative understandings of masculinity as a protection against gendered violence and the impact of Me Too on these challenges. Nicholas is also the only guy who has contributed to the volume. And Mary Cruz writes about Argentinian femicide and the intersectionality of feminist fights against gendered and sexual violence. Um, in our focus on South Asia, Amrita writes about the many fault lines in the Me Too Indian landscape, the liberal conservatism of hashtag feminism, and the material uh, consequences of the Me Too movement outside the digital space. Asmita and Elizabeth Hada talk about the protest signs where they link protest signs in Nepal to international protest signs and examine the role of global English in affirming common identities of women across cultures. Um, Liz Mary Mitchell analyzes and rape culture and am I next, respectively hashtags that were that came pre-Me Too and post-Me Too in South Africa. She elaborates on how the South African movements built on the momentum of the international Me Too movement with a decolonial and intersectional approach. Um, And you touched before um, on some of the theoretical approaches that are used by contributors to this volume. Um, Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, definitely. So the volume has a really wide range of theoretical approaches and perspectives in it. So for example, I have chapters um, about East Asia by Anat Schwartz and Rand Dank that talk about the histories of gendered and sexual violence, historical feminist movements and possibilities of new feminist methods and solidarities. Um, Anat assesses Me Too as indicative of a new method of feminism in South Korea, while Rand highlights the erasure of comfort women to offer Me Too as a radical intervention that builds solidarity between survivors across time and space. Um, Zoe Adi, Nicholas Hawares, and Mary Cruz Gomez contribute chapters about Me Too centering on South America. Zoe highlights how indigenous communities have responded to not only Me Too, but the historical and contemporary crisis indigenous communities faced. 
Nicholas examines settler colonial genocide of Native Americans to challenge the normative understandings of masculinity as a protection against gender violence and the impact of Me Too on these challenges. Nicholas is also the only guy who has contributed to the volume. And Mary Cruz writes about Argentinian femicides and the intersectionality of feminist fights against gendered and sexual violence. Um, in our focus on South Asia, Amrita writes about the fault lines in the Me Too Indian landscape, the liberal conservatism of hashtag feminism, and material consequences of Me Too outside the digital space. We have uh, Asmita and Elizabethada who link protest signs in Nepal to international protest signs and examine the role of global English in affirming common identities of women across culture. Liz Mary Mitchell analyzes and rape culture and hashtag MI next that started before and after Me Too movement um, in South America. She elaborates on how the South African movements built on the momentum of the international Me Too movement with a decolonial and intersectional approach. Bushra Sultana and Friha Jahan conduct personal interviews with Me Too survivors to discuss Me Too and its impact. Tilni Prasadika highlights the role of common citizens in everyday gendered and sexual violence, where she analyzes two movements, 16 Days, 16 Stories, and hashtag create a scene, along with their campaign materials in Sri Lanka. Uh, we have chapters that focus on Muslim countries in the Middle East, South Asia, and Africa, where Afia, Zia, foregrounds paradoxes in feminist politics and contradictions of feminist activism in Pakistan. Aisha and Athia cite examples of sexual harassment in Mecca to investigate how religion is instrumentalized in Muslim societies to justify gendered and sexual violence, while also being proposed as a solution to the same violence. Antonila Cariello argues that the Me Too movements in Tunisia and Morocco were inspired by the international Me Too, but quickly evolved into movements specific to their own geopolitical and cultural locations. Uh, then Jihan Zakaria explores how gendered and sexual violence is used as a political tool of oppression in service of larger political incentives and goals, and that Me Too-inspired movements in the Arab world then inform and are informed by major geopolitical and cultural developments in the region. Um, Farinaz Basmeshi explores the connection between the global Me Too movement and the Iranian Me Too movement. And then we have one chapter from Eastern Europe where Denisa Karasna analyzes the reception of the Me Too movement in the Czech Republic to trace the historical roots of anti-feminist campaigns. So uh, we have like a truly expansive range of perspectives from uh, a range of locations. Each chapter provides a timeline of notable feminist and women's rights events and movements in their respective context. And the theoretical approaches range from auto-ethnographical to feminist vegetarian to, you know, poetical or people like combine multiple methods as well in their chapters. So I think I was lucky to receive um, really refreshing range of book proposals and then chapters from different contributors who all come from different fields. So this is like a very interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary um, collection of essays. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an extremely rich collection, and there's just um, so many different um, parts of it that could be used in many different classes. Um, so I, I think it'll be a really great resource. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I agree with you. Um, so to wrap up our interview, could you talk a little bit about your next book that you mentioned is coming out um, about the Palestinian filmmaker um, Anne-Marie Jassir? 
Yes, definitely. So I have another book coming out. It's called Refocus, the Films of Anne-Marie Jasser, which will be out in November with Edinburgh University Press. Um, it is... It explores the work of the Palestinian filmmaker Anne-Marie Jasser, who's um, more recognized or more widely familiar films involve Wajib, Salt of the Sea, When I Saw You, and Like 20 Impossibles. She also directed the third episode of uh, the American TV series Rami, which I'm sure like more of the audiences uh, is probably familiar with. But her work is... Um, very impressive. She brings together both the political and personal in a um, very smooth way for the audiences. So that is the book that's coming out next in November. Fantastic. Um, oh, thank you for listening to New Books and Gender. I'm Diana Dehanova, and I've been speaking with Dr. Ikra Shagufta-Chima about her book, The Other Me Too's, now available from Oxford University Press. Dr. Chima, thank you again for joining me today. Thank you so much for inviting me, Diana.